listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. a military operation took place that became known as the Black Hawk Shootdown. The coalition nations of the Gulf War were trying to defend the defenseless in northern Iraq and to provide humanitarian aid to them. And this was known as Operation Provide Comfort. But in the process of Operation Provide Comfort, Two pilots of F-15 fighter jets misidentified two of their own Black Hawk helicopters as enemy combatants. The F-15 fighter pilots fired upon the Black Hawk helicopters and took them down, costing many lives. Occurrences such as these are known as friendly fire. Friendly fire takes place when someone misidentifies one of their own as the enemy and they mistakenly begin to attack one of their own. Now, when the Black Hawk shootdown was investigated, it it was discovered that there were several factors that contributed to this incident of friendly fire. The first reason was that the F-15 fighter pilots were faulted for failing to exercise appropriate control. The second reason was that the IFF system, which is the identification friend or foe systems, did not function properly. Their systems did not allow them to identify the difference between friend or foe. And finally, the coalition nations failed to adequately integrate the Black Hawk helicopter operations into their plans. So they weren't used to identifying Black Hawk helicopters as friendlies. At the end of the investigation, disciplinary action was taken and they wrapped up their investigation. Throughout the ages, the Lord has been building a coalition, a community, which exists in part to defend the defenseless and to provide the truest and richest humanitarian aid. And when you look at the biblical theological scope of God's plan, you you might call it Operation Provide Comfort. Because comfort is the announcement of the Lord in the gospel that we have been called to believe and advance. But in the process of Operation Provide Comfort, we can look around at the Lord's coalition. We can look look around at his community and see Christians misidentifying their own as the enemy. Christians are firing upon their own and it's costing many lives. To put it another way, you could say that we have become accustomed to the practice of friendly fire because we have misidentified our own as the enemy and we attack one another. And upon further investigation, if you were to begin to look at the patterns in this friendly fire that takes place in the church, We could be faulted for failing to exercise appropriate control of our mouths and our media use. Investigation reveals that our identification friend or foe system 
our shared profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the triune God is not actually functioning properly when it gets through our hearts and minds. We can also see that many of these friendly fire incidents result from the fact that we have not adequately integrated the rich diversity of the church into our individual lives and our corporate life. So we're not accustomed to identifying many different kinds of people in the church as friendlies. We have not integrated the marginalized into our community, so we fire upon them and take aim. We have not identified those who speak different languages and have slightly different convictions on secondary issues as friendlies, and so we, we fire upon them. In our passage for today, the Apostle Paul gives the church some teaching that is critical to our shared life and our shared mission as God's people. It's information that is critical for us to understand if we're going to love the church like Jesus loves the church. And that's where we began our series on the church in the book of Ephesians. The main goal of this series is that you would love the church like Jesus loves the church. And it's important what Paul gives us by way of his teaching in this passage for this morning. And this critical piece of teaching gives us a clear understanding of who the true enemy of the Lord and his church really is. So we're going to approach this text through two points. Identifying our enemy and understanding our enemy. So let's look at our first point. Identifying our enemy. Now, up to this point in Ephesians, Paul has laid great emphasis on the identity of the church. He's gone to great lengths to depict a particular way of understanding the church, of living in and belonging to the church. He's unpacked the diversity of the church and the unity of the church. He's taught us about the growth and the holiness of the church, the worship of the church. And last week, we tried to tackle Paul's teaching on the submission of the church. And I hope it's become clear to you that despite its weaknesses, sins, failures, and faults, Paul places the highest priority on the church in the plans of God. Higher than any other organization or institution that ever has been or ever will be, the church ranks above them all in the plans of God. Paul wants you to have what you might call a high view of the church. And what is the norm in American Christianity is a low view of the church, a take it or leave it view of the church, a cafeteria approach to the church. And I know it's challenging to hear for any number of reasons which we have already named in the course of this series. But I'm simply giving to you a vision that Paul has given to us about the way in which we prioritize the church in our thinking in the plans of God. But it's very important that we take seriously the flow of Paul's thought that brings us to this passage for this morning. Look at the flow of Paul's thought and how he winds down this letter. After talking about all of these vital aspects of the church and the priority of the church, 
Paul turns to discuss the enemy of the church. In verse 11, Paul calls his readers to, if you look at the text, stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand against the schemes of the devil. It may be the case that some of you this morning have a little chuckle in your soul when you hear me talk about the devil. The devil, come on, man. You're talking about the red guy with the horns. and You're talking about the guy who was dressed up like for Halloween? It seems silly. It seems like something that's not really uh, something to take seriously. When we talk about the devil, many modern people have great troubles taking it seriously. But Andrew Del Banco, who's a secular scholar at Columbia University, he recently wrote a book entitled The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost the Sense of Evil. And Del Banco says this, he says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. And he makes the case that many secular people, understandably, attribute all human cruelty to psychological deprivation, social conditioning, and cultural realities. And in doing so, Del Banco argues, they trivialize the terrible wrongs that we witness. Del Banco suggests that secular liberals, a group to which he himself belongs, have lost any concept of radical evil. And in the book, Del Banco is lamenting the fact that secular thinking has only been able to offer a very thin account of evil. It's a thin account of evil and the, why the, the way things are the way they are. It's thin. It's not satisfying. It doesn't seem to cut the mustard. It doesn't seem to hold up. And this is coming from an honest prophet within the culture. He doesn't have an axe to grind, as it were, from a Christian vantage point, but he himself is able to recognize that psychological, social, and cultural explanations can't really get to the bottom of the great evil that we witness in the world. But Paul gives us a better framework to account for the evil. If you look at verse 12, Paul gives us a thick account by offering a crystal clear identification of our enemy. If you look at the text, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is what you have to understand. If you're taking the, the argument of Del Banco seriously, what we're seeing is this. Modernity's way of operating is this way. We can reduce everything to a technical problem with technical solutions. And anything that is not able to be reduced to a technical problem is discounted. There's got to be a technical solution to this. With enough time, with enough resources, with enough intellectual power and research put into it, we'll figure this thing out. And Del Banco is saying these resources aren't getting us there. They're not accounting for evil properly and they're not dealing with evil. Because even as much as there has been a focus on psychology and psychiatry and these sciences have advanced, it has not diminished the evil in the world. It has not addressed it. It has not explained it. 
in satisfying ways so much of the time. There is evil that defies the explanations of modernity. There is evil that defies the categories of secularity. So what we have for this morning, what I'd like to suggest to you is that you open up to the possibility that there is something deeper going on in the evil we witness in the world. And there's something deeper going on in the evil that we witness in our own hearts. There's something deeper going on in the evil that we witness in our community breakdowns and divisions at times. And Paul is giving us an important picture and an important context for the Christian community. He tells us that there is an enemy of the church. And why does Paul head in this direction, y'all? Why does he head in this direction at the end of his letter? What's he doing? Why does he head in this direction? Because Paul knows that we are prone to friendly fire. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul himself acknowledges that there have been times where he's been in danger from his own people, in danger from false brothers. We know that he was familiar with what it was like to experience friendly fire, and he knew what it was like to be vulnerable himself to actually taking friendly fire at others. He knew what it was like to be pulled into the draw of friendly fire. On one occasion, if you recall, Acts chapter 15, we're told that Paul and Barnabas had a, quote, sharp disagreement so that they separated from one another. Paul knew the draw of friendly fire. He knew the pool of it. But here in Ephesians, Paul is telling us that we have to rightly identify our shared enemy. And if the apostle were to be our guest preacher this morning, he would tell you that the real enemy is not your spouse. If you're married in here, look at your spouse and say, you're not the enemy. Oh, come on, y'all. Don't be quiet off in here. I know you had an argument last night. I know y'all got up slamming your coffee around this morning, but look at your spouse and tell them you're not the enemy. You are not. Your spouse is not the enemy. Your fellow church members are not the enemy. Your kids are not the enemy. (laughs) I can believe it in here this morning. Your kids are not the enemy. Your neighbors and your co-workers are not the enemy. Even when they leave their trash cans out blocking the alley, they are not your enemy. The apostle would tell us that we have misidentified the real enemy. It's the white evangelicals. It's the Marxist liberals. It's the Black Lives Matter people. It's Southerners. It's millennials. We have all of these ways of thinking about who our enemies are, but Paul is telling you all that oftentimes is simply friendly fire. You have to see who your real enemy is. What Paul is helping us to see is that we fail to acknowledge the role that Satan plays in promoting and advancing discord between people groups and disrupting cross-cultural love in the family of God. This is what he does. And often we're flying blind to the cosmic drama that we have been caught up into. 
Now, it's admittedly a mysterious work that the enemy does. We can't really spell out with super great detail all of the ways in which he works upon us. Can he implant thoughts? Can he suggest ideas? The Bible doesn't get into that level of detail. What the Bible warns us about and tells us to be wary of and on guard for is the fact that the war exists. And the context of our lives in the world, in one way of understanding it, is that we're in a battle. We're in a war. And you know what happens to people who exist in wartime like there's, there's no war? They get killed. They wind up casualties of that very war that they have ignored. It's admittedly mysterious, the work that Satan does, but it's real, it's toxic, it's deadly. The kingdom of darkness, what we see throughout the scriptures, the kingdom of darkness is unified in the work of sowing division. The kingdom of darkness is unified... In the work of sowing division. Jesus, when someone said, he's got a demon. Jesus said, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. And I think that what we can conclude based upon what we observe in the world and what we observe in our hearts is that his kingdom is standing united. The kingdom of evil and darkness is standing united. And the great irony is that the kingdom of the evil one stands unified in sowing division and the church so often stands divided in trying to sow unity. It's, it's upside down. It's topsy-turvy. So Paul's trying to give us handles about how we can actually be his community in the world. How can you actually do the work of neighbor love? How can you live as one? How can you value unity in diversity? How can you embrace the holiness call of the church? How can you really worship in freedom and truth and spirit and truth? You have to know your enemy. You have to know your enemy. We have to properly identify our true enemy, but we also have to understand our enemy, which brings us to our second point, understanding the enemy. Now, there's a lot that can be said about this passage. When you look at verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, look. It doesn't seem that textually Paul is using a bunch of synonyms here. It seems that what he's laying out is a sort of hierarchy of evil forces that are at work in the world that we cannot see. And I think one of the, one of the things that will help us to appreciate what's going on here is if you go back to the ministry of Jesus, there was a heightening of demonic activity, of the activity of the powers of darkness. There was a heightening because this was a sort of culmination of sorts. And we see what's at stake. We see the things that are attributed to the works of evil, to the powers of evil. And it's no joke. It's no joke. It's not something that, that we're to play around with. But there has been a shift in our, what you would call, our redemptive historical epoch. Okay? 
That means with the coming of Jesus, his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and the outpouring of his spirit at Pentecost, we're now in a different phase of the development of the big story of God. And Satan has deployed fresh tactics. But despite all the fresh tactics, there are two primary titles and categories that are given to us in order to help us to understand the spiritual conflict that we are engaged in. Two primary ways of describing Satan in Scripture. He is accuser and he is liar. And this must be primary in our understanding of the enemy that we are facing. As the accuser, listen to this, as the accuser, I've said this before, I'm saying it again because it bears repeating in the context of thinking about the church. As the accuser, Satan accuses us before God. He accuses God before us. He accuses us before others. And he accuses others before us. And he accuses us before ourselves. Don't think flatly about it. He, he, his instrument, he is the first chair of accusation in the ensemble of darkness. He knows how to ply his trade. He knows how to play his instrument. He knows how to work and manipulate accusation to totally tear us apart. Because guess what follows accusation? Suspicion. And then division. And then outright warfare. Straight up friendly fire. This is where we often remain stuck because the evil one weaves his twisted web of accusation with great skill. And he works from a place of hiddenness. It's like guerrilla warfare. It's hard to get a bead on him at times. But next week, Pastor Joel is going to break down for you the dynamics of the armor that we're called to put on. And it's going to be empowering. And it's going to be a helpful corrective for us. It's been said, no pressure. No pressure because the battle ain't against flesh and blood. You know what I'm saying? It's been said that the most successful ploy the devil has ever pulled off was in getting people to believe that he doesn't exist. And that's how he wages his guerrilla warfare. He's the accuser. But he's also a liar. And he traffics in advancing lies about God. He traffics in advancing lies about others. And he advances in trafficking and getting us to embrace lies about ourselves. Many of us embrace lies about what God is like, what God is up to. We say things like, I couldn't believe in a God who's not like this. And essentially what we're saying is we want a God who's no bigger than ourselves. We don't want a God who can expand the capacity of our own minds. And so we come to believe lies about him. The work of deception gets us to embrace ideas that are neither true nor faithful nor beautiful because they're comfortable. He works his, his weave of deception. He gets us to believe lies about God. He gets us to believe lies about one another. To make assumptions 
to mind read. You know what? They probably did that to slight me. They probably did that because they think they're all that. But I'll show them. He gets us to believe the lies about the bad intentions of other people, even when we don't have data to prove it. And even when we have data to prove that another's intentions were not pure or good, he gets us to believe the lie that their sins are greater than ours. He gets us to believe the lie that we're more forgivable than they are. He gets us to believe the lie that they should be put on the the measurement of karma and we should be put on the measurement of grace. He gets us to believe the lie, but he also gets us to believe the lies about ourselves. Now, I want to say this about that. Based upon your cultural location, you are probably more prone to believe a different set of lies than another. In some cultural contexts, the evil one tries to get you to believe the lie of your own worthlessness, that you are valueless, that you got nothing to offer. You're never going to get out of this hole. You're never going to be able to make your past right. You're never going to be beautiful and acceptable before God. There's never any way that you're going to be accepted by other people. You're a joke. Look at where you come from. You're nothing. You are valueless. And you begin to believe it. And then you self-destruct. That's one set of lies. Another set of lies is you really are amazing. I mean, really, look around. He's better than you. I mean, he's smarter than you. I mean, you are at the top of your field. So that must carry over to every other area of your life. You are just pretty much supreme. You know, like God broke the mold with you. You know what? You're a, just a selfless, humble person. You know that? Yeah, yeah, I am. You know what? Can nobody do theology like you? Look at those suckers believing those erroneous doctrines. Man, shoot. You know what? You're the one that's been right in this marriage all along. It's always been her problem. You know, you're the one who is usually most level-headed, so, so he must be the problem. He gets you to believe the lies of your own greatness. And then sometimes he ping-pongs you back and forth between the two. Because of traumas that happen in your life, you might be riding high, and then all of a sudden you face some kind of trauma that's, that compromises your sense of value and worthlessness. And so you spend most of your time trying to fight your way back to these positive thoughts. When what the Bible gives you is a sober understanding of yourself. You are simultaneously justified and jacked up. Both at the same time. You are beloved and broken. You are simultaneously declared good in the eyes of God and gross. Both things are true. And the only way you will maintain that narrow road is by a firm grip on the gospel. A firm grip on the gospel will never throw you off into the, what Bunyan called the slough of despond, the, 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 the quicksand of despair that you can't get out of, nor will it leave you in the place of pride that will eventually get you humbled. It puts you in a place of sober-minded gratitude and stability. When you have this 
true view of yourself by fighting through the, the, the works of the accuser and all of his lies. Notice how Satan drives subtle wedges, how the evil one will nourish little annoyances with the other and suggest that we nurse minor offenses and grudges until we positively grow to despise that person based upon the smallest little things. How they chew that cereal. <clears throat> Drive me crazy. Oh, you, you just got to smack like that at the table. And all of a sudden you're in a full blown fight because you're battling against flesh and blood and Cheerios. You know what I'm saying? He's skilled at working these divisions. He's able, he's able to nurse the plant of discontentment until it gets full grown and it's hard to uproot. He uses jujitsu as well. You know, jujitsu is that, that craft, that, that martial art, where um, much of this martial art is about using the opponent's own strength against them. If they race at you, you fall back and, and flip them, right? Well, he uses jujitsu. He would have our gatherings that are supposed to be unity lead to further estrangement. He would have a sharp mind lead to a dull heart. He would have zeal for truth yield a betrayal of love. He's crafty in that way. I want to suggest to you that you add this lens on to the way that you're thinking about your life right now. Where you find yourself right now is not a flesh and blood thing. It's spiritual battle. The things you're struggling with, the things you're battling with, the things you're suffering through, you're in a battle right now. The difficulties of your life are compounded by the warfare in which you are situated. And I love that during our confession of sin, the pastor Joel included that passage from Peter that your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion. Are you the equivalent of skipping through the park when the lion is prowling to devour you? Today's the day to begin thinking about identifying your enemy, understanding your enemy, and putting on the full armor of God. But how are we to stand, y'all? How are we to stand? This is how you're to think about Ephesians 6. You ready for this? There are lots of Bible interpreters that view this passage in this way. What's happening is Paul is sitting in jail and he's thinking on a Roman soldier. And he's looking at the gear of the Roman soldier and then he starts to do this little riff on the armor that you put on. I don't think that's what Paul is doing. It's possible, but I don't think it's probable. What I think is happening is that Paul is, is bringing a biblical theme to a fullness because he's actually riffing off Isaiah 59, I believe. In Isaiah 59, the prophet says this, justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. 
He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. Listen, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. So he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands. He will render repayment so they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. This is the depiction of the Lord as the divine warrior who's doing battle against the forces of evil and injustice and chaos and brokenness. And the theme continues to develop until we get to the Gospels and we see the divine warrior show up in a most surprising fashion. But what we see, y'all, this is the good news. Don't go away from here thinking, well, I just got to be strong in the Lord and it's all on me to get strong in the Lord and to get my spiritual act together. No, the first thing you have to do is you have to see the good news. The good news is that Christ went to battle for the church as the divine warrior. He put on the whole armor of God and stood against the schemes of the devil. He did not wrestle against flesh and blood. He fought against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And he claimed victory over the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers. Victory over the spiritual forces of evil. And he has won this victory as the triune God. Look at this. Father, Son, and Spirit have won this victory. How? Paul has already given it to us in chapter 1. Paul tells us in chapter 1 of this letter that the Father of glory has called us to hope and has given us the riches of his glorious inheritance. And now we can know, quote, listen, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave Christ as head over all things to the church. Do you see? Do you see that the way we stand against the schemes of our greatest enemy is by standing in the person and work of our greatest friend? Do you see that? Don't do all of your focusing on the enemy. You're supposed to see through the enemy to your greatest friend standing with his sword over his head. His days are numbered. He has an expiration date on all of his works and they shall come to no more. And it's from that position of power and union with Christ that we can stand. Do you know what is yours in the gospel? That's the way you begin to get a little chip on your shoulder and stop letting the enemy push you around. Stop letting him deceive you and accuse you and manipulate you. Name his lies. You're worthless. Liar. How valuable must I be to God that he would send his son for me? You lie. You know, nothing good's ever going to come of your life. You lie. 
He who began a good work in me will complete it to the day of Christ Jesus. We got to follow Jesus' footsteps in the desert and do combat with the evil one with the word of Christ. This is the equipping that we get. This is how we maintain clear vision and stand together in a united front. Do you see that the church is the new divine warrior figure pushing back the darkness in the world? This is not just to be applied to individual Christians. It's to be applied to our community. We together are putting on the armor so that we can take up our role of holy warfare against all the evil and injustice of the world. To push back the the, the poverty with generosity. To push back the alienation and marginalization with an extended hand of friendship. Don't you see? We are taking up that role now. So we must... Keep our eyes open. We must, as Paul said in chapter 4, stay woke to who our true enemy is. Just doing a little flip on that, you know what I'm saying? I want you to take this away. I've said this to you before, but I'm bringing it back again. It's useful. It's it's helped me a lot. I've I've stolen this. I I gained this thinking through reading C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. If you're not familiar with that, Talk to somebody around here who knows. I'm glad to talk to you more about that book. I highly recommend it. Here's the deal. If you were your greatest enemy, what would you do to you to get you tripped up in the faith? To get you to give up? To get you to live in discord with your brothers and sisters? What would you do to you to ruin your marriage? To terrorize your relationships? What would you do to you to get you separated from the means of grace? What would you do to you? What would you do to you to render you fruitless, discouraged, despairing, proud and arrogant, unteachable? What would you do to you? Now, think about that. The devil's at work, but God's at work. And this is not dualism. Satan is not the equal opponent of the Lord. God could say, poof, gone. He's gone. But there is something redemptive that God is doing at this time and sanctifying us through the battle. So ask yourself that question and begin to to grow so that you're not ignorant of his schemes. Let's put on the full armor of God so that we can stand. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.